0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Anthropological. It's season two, sis, and I am Kasira Hill, your local Chicago graphic designer, anthropologist, um, and my any kind of language, you'll get the joke later, my any kind of language is pay my invoice on time as soon as I send it.
1: Oh my God, it was one time. You really just love to hold a grudge. It's <laughs> unbelievable (laughs) my name is david moore i'm a chicago-based bartender founder of spill my love language is positive affirmation and my food language is uncrustables
0: speaking of languages we are talking about food language today i also just realized um thank you y'all i did not say our intro like how do i intro the episode sis jumped over the whole thing we are anthropological, sis, and we are serving up some real-life applications for some very anthropological theories. How many times have I done this?
1: Well, honestly, <laughs> we could totally, if we wanted to, edit this, but we're not going to, y'all. This is what you get. This is raw and uncensored. Wait, are we still talking about un- anthropological, or what are we talking about?
0: Raw? No. <laughs> T. Um, Yeah, y'all, thank you for joining us. Um, We're talking about food language today, and we're going to get into it. We've got an amazing guest, per usual, joining us um, as we continue this, and uh, let's get into it. Hey, everyone. I'm back to offer some anthropological theory into the conversation of food language, and I want to start off by offering a quote by the author Jillian Grother, who wrote, A really amazing book with some really awesome insights for um, anyone interested in food anthropology called Eating Culture, An Anthropological Guide to Food. Cuisines are not simply random assemblages of ingredients and characteristic flavors, but instead are long-term, largely nutritious adaptations that have supported generations through time. Nor are they merely diets. The food habitually consumed by a population, instead, they are full of value and meaning, wrought with environment and history, full of emotionally connective power. They are not practiced only occasionally, but every day, routine, and often unself conscious cultural acts that are remarked upon, you know, unless in, in relation to f- the food eating habits of other people. This makes cuisines a relational form of cultural marker whose relevance, rather than ethnicity itself, waxes and wanes in intensity depending on circumstances. While cuisines may appear consistent through time, they will always change as new ingredients and ideas are incorporated, yet they offer an evocative, confronting familiarity with the habitual consumer. Cuisines act as powerful emotive forces that are at the heart of social life, having agency in shaping people and their social relationships. They are the culinary expression of any place, the culmination of the influences in environment, the food-getting strategy, the organization of food production through kinship, age, gender, and specialization, the social and political organizations, ideology, and the circumstances of history and encounters with other cultures. A cuisine can be defined as a facet of culture concerned with ideas, beliefs, behaviors, and practices of people in relation to their creation and use of food that is socially and physically sustaining. So that brings me to the conversation about food language, because in this sense, humans, as we've evolved through time, have a really close relationship with culture. I mean, culture is a motivational factor in regards to how we evolve, right? We're unique in that way, and you'll hear that throughout these episodes, right? So in the idea of of food language, I think it's really important to investigate, right, when we talk about food spaces, whether we're sitting at a dinner table, or we're sitting on the ground, or we're eating outside, or we're eating indoors – the main question is, what are we stepping into, right? What cultural and food communication, what kind of mood, what kind of vibe are we stepping into? And how can we interpret that through the food that we're being served, how that food is served, and the entire kind of experiential moment that we're having in consuming this food? So that's kind of where I'm coming from in this thought. And, um, I provide that context because this is a really nuanced, ah, uh, here we go again with the word nuanced, right? But cultural events, um, the context that we serve through food, what we tell through food is really ingrained in into how humans operate and how some of our language is, right? We don't just have written language. We don't just have spoken language. but We have cultural language as well. So as we delve into this conversation, I want you to hold this quote so that we can kind of think about what our food language is and how this really shapes and influences the experiences that we have around food or what's being communicated in that instance, right? Is it a joyous time? Is it a traditional time? Is it a religious time? All of these are factors and play a vital context into how and when and what food is served in any given moment. And that's what I want to add. That wraps up the anthropological section. We're keeping it short and cute. Appreciate your time. Here we go. Let's switch gears.
1: All right, y'all. Let's have a kiki. I understood what you were saying so-so. And I always get very excited to intro this part of our episode because I like alliteration and repetition. Okay, so I want to kind of delve into this in real time, talking about food language and how each of us experience it in our kind of daily lives and when we're with other people. Obviously we have some anthropological context now and we're also going to delve into it from especially like a curation standpoint with a chef on the call a little bit later. when I'm thinking of food language, honestly, some of the first things that I think about are that I like to host people at home, you know, when Matt and I have friends over. Um, and we're, especially when we have friends that are in the industry, like we're very obviously selective of the kind of experience we it to make it feel like. Cause Matt and I are extra and we like to do like a cocktail for the night for people that come over. And we like to get a bunch of wine we like to show off a little bit. And I think that the reason I'm noticing that we've come to this sort of agreement why we do it is because Matt and I never grew up with that type of setting. We grew up in very rural areas. And although my parents and I traveled a lot, we grew up with like the, you know, steak and shake would be like really splurging on something. So we really always had a desire to like try out this sort of fine dining lifestyle. And then once we both got to work in it, we loved it. We fell in love with the kind of idea of, of this, you know, indulging into this fun, you know, style of service. And so now we try to create that moment when we have people over. So that was kind of the first thing that I thought of when I, when we were discussing the food language topic was, I think that Matt and I's food language together is very parallel and it's actually probably what made us fall in love with each other was when we would go out to eat together, the way that we would order, the places that we'd go to together that really like, you know, kind of turned us on. It was these types of places where it was like, just a little on the bougie side, but it just made you feel like a queen, which we already were. And I, that was something that we both kind of gravitated towards very naturally.
0: I like what you bring up there because um, I think that, especially when you talk about food languages in, in something, experience something, experiencing something new, um, same deal, right? Like I, when I was growing up in uh, Seattle, although not a rural setting, there were definitely like uh, common restaurants that we were going to. Um, a lot of Vietnamese, uh, like delis, a lot of like Ethiopian restaurants. And um, those are two very like different environments, especially when you consider, uh, you know, how Ethiopian food in particular is consumed. Um, Lots of stuff with your hands. We're sharing a plate. It's a big plate, big platter um, with all the delicious, you know, lentils and stuff that we love, Um, you know, different environment when you go into a Vietnamese deli. Um, So what kind of brought me to this topic uh, was just thinking about uh, the emotions and the kind of non-strictly communicative elements of what food tells us about that space, right? And so it's a lot of, you know, the environment. It's a lot of traditions attached to either that culture or specifically that person that's just curating that restaurant or that space. Um, So I think stepping into something new and understanding food as having a language in and of itself that is not attached to, you know, the written or the, the spoken word. Yeah,
1: because um, yeah. I think if you were to really dissect it, I mean, I'm thinking of like, the way that people play a dish, that is a language, you know, it's, it's trying to tell you something. It's trying to evoke a feeling. It's, you know, if I didn't care too much about presentation, I would present a cocktail very differently than in a specific environment where like, I'm trying to make a very clear point of view through the garnishing, through the plating, through the glass or whatever it is, of the drink or the the food item. On the other hand of it, you know, I think of like Neon Wilderness, right in Worker Wicker Park, um, and I'm thinking like think the whole kind of attitude there is a little bit of like a, a a nod to dive bars, but yet it's craft cocktails too. So there is a there's something being told in not taking yourself too seriously, but you do take yourself somewhat seriously because you do care. You know, it's an industry spot. So you still want it to be of good quality. So I'm always just really kind of fascinated by how people manifest languages in how they plate things, write menus, you know, how they serve stuff. It's it's fun to kind of be a part of.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think you bring up an interesting point too about like stepping into a beverage space. And that's kind of where I have a little bit more of like an example-based kind of conversation for something around food language. It's like, same deal. Uh, You go into a cocktail bar and there is a really dense menu with a lot of ingredients that you don't recognize. So the actual contextual and written language on that menu may go right over your head. But, you know, by sitting down, right, and and looking at the space around you, what kind of environment that is, or even your server, right? Even the experience that you're confronted with when when someone's, you know, walking up to your table and asking you, like, how you're doing, are you ready to order, et cetera, and the manner of which they do that. I think, um, you know, being at, um, I feel like I've talked about it so many times at this point, but sis that's the last place that I worked um Violet (laughs) Hour (laughs) but like you know you go in and it's a whole dark cave and things might be a little bit bougie it's a little confusing the menu certainly is dense but I definitely you know in acknowledging that and wanting to uh communicate to our guests coming in that yeah this menu is written and is, you know, a little bit hard to approach if you don't recognize all these ingredients. But I'm coming to you very casually. We're chatting very casually. This is not like a hoity toity, you know, blah, blah, blah. So even beyond the, you know, the written language on the menu and how it's communicated for the cocktails, um, when you walk, when your server comes up or your bartender comes up to you, uh, How are they combining their vibes, or how they are, you know, holding themselves in that space? Either talking to you, blah blah blah, Um, and how does that interact with the overall vibes of the space? Does it clash? Does it make sense? Um, Same deal with like, you know, Neon Wilderness being a space that's like giving a nod to a a divey experience, but then they also have, uh, you know, quote unquote, nice things or or curated cocktails um, on the menu or what have you. So. It's like i I would say that food language for me, in short, is just vibes.
1: <laughs> period.
0: period, that's it. I period. would
1: I would say that food language for me is also vibes. Uh, I don't have a better answer. It's true. Yeah,
0: you are saying at the beginning when someone comes over for like a hosted little party at your joint, like same deal. If I feel like I want to have a little bougie moment, my friends not, might not know what they're stepping into, but I'm going to, you know, they come in and everything's very candle lit and things and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And that's the vibe that I want. If I wanted, you know, to communicate not only through the food, but the drinks at my spot when we're having like a day rager, you know, that's going to look like you know, uh, things served in red cups. I might have a giant cooler that's just full, full of Spody. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Just mixed mysterious cocktail. Um, you know, we're doing, we're doing grilled food outside or like hand things, you know, things that you're snacking on versus like a bougie moment where maybe it's like some small plates and some this and some that. And I think that even, even in saying that out loud, I'm, I'm recognizing That what we consider to be casual and what that looks like and what we consider to be a little bit more of a of a bougie experience or whatever is also completely um, defined by, you know, our our mixed American experiences, right? So our standards of like oh, this food is telling me that this is a fine dining moment, it's plated a certain way, you know what I mean? You have to crack something open and then it drips and then you, you know, run your bread through it or whatever. Um, All of that is also situated by the traditions and just the cultural context that we understand uh, being in. And I want to take that even further and be like, you know, what are, can you think of some spaces that you stepped into, whether you were eating or drinking, where, Maybe it wasn't so clear the context that you're in. And I'm thinking about if I were to step into a food cuisine that I've never had in a traditional setting, like say it was like a Turkish Mm -hmm. dinner I've never had, or or, um, I was just doing some stuff with Compass Rose. They've got a Russian Zakuski menu. I don't know anything about that. So when I go there, I need someone to explain it to me. But again, that cultural context, that background, I might not know how to interact with that food or interact with that drink without someone kind of helping me along to understand what that language is.
1: It's why I love dining out with people who know so much more than me because I feel like I get to be like a student of that food culture, that food language for the time that we're sitting there. I think of the first time that I got to do like fairly authentic, you know, kind of Korean barbecue, if that's even something that referred mm-hmm. to as authentic. But the first time I, I did it and had um, Ed Hong with me and he just kind of walked me through the the process and was like, you know, it's just funny. Cause I, it's a, there are steps of service that we know as like professionals that we that we put out for wherever we work. But there's almost, there's a step of, of acknowledgement when it comes to being a guest sitting down and dining too. And so it all kind of plays um, specifically really well into the way that a space kind of makes you feel, the music that they set up, the menus that they write, the way that the chef wants to, to tell a story with the food, the setting and everything, um, which is gonna be great because we're about to talk to an awesome chef Nikki Marcelin in just a moment who's going to dive a little deeper into food language with us here on Anthropological.
0: Hi Nikki what's up?
2: Hi <laughs> how are you?
0: Good how are you doing?
2: I'm doing great. Um, yeah, you know doing my best the best I can enjoying the the fake spring that New York has sprung up on us. There is a uh, snow coming next week, so,
0: <laughs> so. Heard that. um, thank you for joining us today. Um so, so happy to have you. Um, we when we're talking about food language, I immediately started thinking about all the amazing people that I've met. Um, while traveling and, and folks that I normally wouldn't run into being in Chicago or being in back home in Seattle and um I immediately thought of you and your work. I think you must have been on my Instagram feed or something at the time. And I was like, I need to hit up Nikki because she's been curating and creating things visually, at least on my feed, um, that I'm seeing from a distance, you know what I'm saying? And I need to hit up (laughs) Homegirl in this discussion. So I want to leave some space um, for you to introduce your work and for folks to get a sense of what you do before we jump into this convo. Um, Yeah, uh,
2: I'm Haitian born. I currently live in Brooklyn. I'm a chef, um, curator. Um, I develop recipes and design menus and um, consult for restaurants. Essentially, I have stopped working working full time in restaurants um, to really focus in on what I really want and really focus in on building a better landscape in the food environment that I want to see um, that I'm not able to like achieve just like working in a restaurant at whatever capacity. And trust me, I've like done it all from runner to busser to bar to like I've moved up the ladder. Um, so yeah, and right now I'm in the harsh um, marshlands of owning something and being the proprietor and figuring out how to translate everything I see in my brain to every other human in the world and making them feel and um, understand that like this is the future. So yeah,
1: (laughs) that's who I am. Was there a specific moment that made you decide, I need to take a step back from working in restaurants five, six, 18 days a week to like, I want to create something. I want to form my own business. What was kind of that moment for you?
2: Um, I think that moment was like spending weeks. Um, like, I, could, I got to a restaurant where it was like education was like, you know, like it was like something that was forced upon us, and I loved it because that's not something that I had gotten before. Um, and I would spend like weeks and days and like just studying and researching all these things. And then, um, I would test these recipes, like, come in beforehand, test these recipes, like, put them out, like, to taste. And, like, it was just not received the way I wanted it to to be received. Um, And that's not a bad thing, maybe because, like, I was going in my own, just my vision did not meet, like, the branding of the restaurant. Um, And I wanted to do more of that. And I wanted to, and after being in front of the house, I just saw, like, how much of a just like rinse and repeat it was. Um, and just sort of, I did like a little stit at Del Posto and it's, I call it like <laughs> um, like factory fine dining. Cause it's like, it's so quick, it's huge. And the amount of like people that we had to go through a night and the amount of turns that we had to go through for the level of service they were asking out of us. Um, I just, every night I would come out and just come out of it saying to myself, like, did that person really enjoy, um, what they came here for? Because I'm making good money. Yeah, that's great. You know, like that, like three and a half tables, three and a half turns. Um, but did that person really enjoy that experience? Cause I barely spoke to them and I know they barely spoke to me and you sat, you sit down, you order your waters poured, like all that stuff. But um, so I think that was like the the like the ping. Um, and then something else, I think it shifted. Like I started getting sort of that shift of do I, do I not? Um just junior year of call like college, I remember just something like flipping, right? because um, I took this. Food and culture sociology course. Like you had to take a sociology course, and I was like, I'm not doing it. I already did that. Um, so I <laughs> like I scammed my way into like the sociology course um, at Johnson Wells, and then it was like food and culture, and then I scammed my way into like another course at like um, Brown, and I just remember wanting to be, like, I wanting to educate everybody, wanting everybody to get out of, like, a dining experience, um, with more knowledge than when they came in, not just, like, oh, like, this alcohol (laughs) by volume, and (laughs) this drink that you've never heard of, but more so, like, the cultural significance behind it, and, um, the cultural significance of why, like, like, everything changes when you start learning a, like, oh, this is a reason why, like, Jewish people might not eat pork and they might not eat milk with this and that. It's like, yeah, of course it makes sense. You were in, like, the desert with no refrigeration. It was hot and, like, bacteria and all these things. So um, when you start getting that background, you start learning and diving more into these things, like, it just made me, like, hungry for more and, uh, like, also very excited to share everything I was learning with everybody else but in like a really I don't know everything's been done right but like in a new memorable way where like I can leave a lasting impression on somebody um yeah so I think that that's sort of like the encompassing and the journey of that and I'm still in that journey because it's something that's
0: still like forming um right yeah ever-changing as well and i think i think something that you touched on as i'm listening to you speak i you know in regards to to food language and how we communicate uh dishes or how we communicate that feeling or that history or that context um behind the meal that we've kind of put together for someone we all do this right it Mm -hmm. doesn't matter if you um are someone that is in a fine dining setting and is a chef and is putting together plates and sending them out, like you're saying, and, 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 uh, expecting the rest of the experience to kind of be held through that service space that you're no longer a part of, or you're at home and you're making a charcuterie board, which I just did for some friends, and you sit down and you you know what I mean. You have your wine and maybe you lit some candles or you cleaned your living room a little bit and you've got you've got your space um, kind of curated. So because. Uh, I've seen so much content from you in that very special, kind of moody and in your own way, um, a curated space. I'd love to hear more about your event work and how you kind of bring moments of not only your Haitian identity, but also the food cuisines that you've learned about or that you appreciate, um, pairing with wines and all of that kind of space curation. I would love to hear a little bit more about maybe how you start that process, what you start initially thinking about, whether someone's booking you as a chef, or you're putting on a a curated event for a crowd or a small group or an intimate dining setting, where do you start?
2: I normally, um, for each of these scenarios, I normally start with the people, like the demographic that's going to be there, um, and what I want them to leave with, like, whether it's, like, curating a brunch for like Tropicana where I know they're just doing it for a bunch of influencers and I know what they're looking for and I kind of want to step away from that oh like making influencer food (laughs) like and bring something like new um or I'm like it's just or I'm sitting in front of like my computer doing something and like it sparks an idea and it's just like I have to do like oysters and rosé like how am I gonna do this (laughs) and then it starts in that factor and then um I'll like do some research and like bring out the books and I'll take out my flavor bible which is like (laughs) like my baby and then I'll start from there and just sort of um like building a map of how I can like connect it and who I can bring in and collaborate with. Because um, I think like all the specific events that I do for crowds that I'm off, that's an offering to the public, um, I try to bring somebody else that either has more knowledge or, or like equal to mine or somebody that's just like in beginning, you know what I mean? Whether it's like partnering up with like a friend Who's been in the wine space forever? And they're sort of looking for their voice and how to um, communicate that. Like, I, I bring it in that way and just um, contact them and tell them a little bit of what I'm doing and really open up the space um, for collaboration. Um, and I think something else that I do that's like really hard for me is um, trying to not be so rigid in just, like, the way an adult thinks, (laughs) Um, because there is this sort of, like, um, not wanting to take a lot of risks um, that opens up, like, as you get older, you just, like, stop just, like, wanting to to get, take a real risk, like, I'm putting in 2,500 into this, like, I need to get this out, and I can't necessarily bring, like, fog machines to every table. (laughs) Like even if I wanted to and like build a moon. Like that's not something I can do, but like I can do something very close to that. Um yeah. So it honestly just starts with like, and I the demographics and um what I think they would like. And then from the research perspective, like scouring the internet like social media YouTube all that stuff and just looking at like oh okay this seems like the type of people that are gonna be there um and then from there um really going into like what I want to showcase is it like is it gonna be vegetable like focused, that I'm gonna hit up all the farms that I know, or am I gonna do something where it's like more meaty and like sort of in equal balance and what's gonna, and what do I want to be like the centerpiece and that final like wow moment, Um, you know? uh, uh, So that's what I build it around, like the people, then like history, then um, the main like showpiece, And then from there, um, I build out the event around it, whether it's going to be most of my events, honestly, tend to be um, family style for clients. I normally push them towards family style because I really enjoy just like eating as a community. And um, I have the saying that, like, I don't break bread with anybody that like I don't like um i don't like being tense at the table that's not something i want like even in movies when people are fighting at the table i'm just like y'all are ruining my eating experience like
0: i'm just trying to it. chill i'm um, trying to eat my so... food i'm trying to kick it <laughs> yeah you know what I'm, saying? I'm trying to kiki mm-hmm. um and not yeah. have you're saying like the formal like okay and then this and then everyone's gonna yeah. you know what i mean like yeah. a very performative moment you're talking yeah. about kind of okay. curating a community space um in regards okay to like sharing on the
1: them. other side of the spectrum i love some drama at the dinner table <laughs> i live on it i i do when i see a movie where it's like really tense at a dining room table i'm like oh this movie's about to get so good like the kids are all right <laughs> julianne moore annette benning mark ruffalo they're arguing and the kids are just watching it all happen i'm like i can relate so deeply to this and i just i i live off I can't. Of it. I it, ups, it it upsets me in my digestion
0: i got attitude i got attitude ibs
1: okay i know <laughs> oh, i got
0: a b god <laughs> um, <laughs> um
2: so yeah i really try to push for like um just sort of community when i'm building the menus that i build and even like as recent as like building a menu for like a restaurant and that whole experience and the way that i built the menu was like the beginning is like sharing right and then the middle is this and you get you can have the option to just um build and get this giant like seafood tower if you want and this is how you do it and this is so really like guiding someone through an experience without making them feel stupid um we're not making them feel like they're like they're being guided through it's just sort of like get whatever you get and be sure to share um so i think that's something that's not has spoken about, I think, us within like the hospitality space and within food and beverage, like we're very big on like going to a restaurant and trying it and everybody getting like two or three dishes, putting them in the middle of the table, and just sort of having family meal out. I, I don't think that's a concept that's been introduced um, to the public as much in America or to a certain demographic. Um, I think for people that can afford to like dine at like the modern and like, or any like USHG space, like every day of the week that they're going to get that sort of like experience. But for someone who like maybe doesn't get that experience all the time, like if they do, when they do go to that space, everybody just sort of gets like, I, like, my own appetizer, my own, like, entree, <laughs> and, like, this, and, like, ah, oh, that's such a boring experience, like, I'm giving you two hours, like, you, like, in you, this will be done before, you know, I'm giving you two hours to really enjoy this, really dive in there, and really, like, build flavors on your own, and also try the flavors that I've put on the plate that are supposed to complement each other, but, also you experimenting at the table. So I think you should take it. Um, so I think that's not something that's communicated enough um, within just America has like big chains, right? Within like a space like Cheesecake Factory or like Applebee's or whatever. Um, so I, I think that's something that I, I really strive to put out um, with within anything I do. Um, Is it easy? No. (laughs) But, like, it's something that um, I think I do a very good job of pushing for.
1: I think what I love about this is it sort of does relate, though, back to what we learn as, uh, especially like bartenders that put together cocktail menus, is that you have to think of your clientele, your general your general demographic that comes into your bar. Obviously, there's people from all walks of life, but if 80% of your people are cocktail enthusiasts, you can kind of get away with some more experimental stuff. But um, if your bar is in the Gold Coast in Chicago, and that is not your clientele, your clientele is you know, kind of a fratty slash socialite group of people, they don't don't care that you're doing X, Y, Z to your drink because you as a bartender know that it's actually this really unique, sustainable element that's not being tried out elsewhere. So I think it's interesting that even though the impetus for you is always to educate and offer this experience that is really informative of the cuisine that you're putting on the table, that you kind of still have to mold it to be considerate of who's hiring you for that because at the end of the day mm-hmm. it is a, it is still a business and wouldn't it be nice if you could just say I don't care what my clientele says this is what I'm doing no matter what but you say that until you're not getting booked anymore people aren't coming to your restaurant anymore it's a tough balance I've tried
2: Yeah <laughs> I have tried oh my god I think I think I think every creative gets to that place where you're just like This is what's right!
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs)
2: Like, I know better! Why don't you take my word for it? Um, To the point where I was like, you know what? Make all the substitutions you want. I'm just going to do a pop-up called No Substitution. Submit your allergies when you buy your ticket! (laughs) And, like, that's it! Like, I don't care about, like, your picky self. (laughs) And and you're just going to eat what I put out. Um, So that's my way like, around the, like, going around not, like, catering to the client, per se. Um, it's just, like, this is what I'm doing. You, you say you support me. You want to support me. This is, like, just come in. No substitutions. Um, I will care for your allergy. You have to submit it beforehand, and then that's it. Like, that. that is <laughs> that in itself. Um, but I, 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 in a client's, that's not something you can do because people are very picky especially with like the type of like clients I deal with they're just they 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 know what they know and that's what they're gonna go for um rich doesn't necessarily mean good taste (laughs) sometimes you're just like this makes no sense but great (laughs) like um but still being still striving or working to find a way to give um the client or the public what they want or the neighborhood what they want um without the experience or your food coming off as a big like um like ego trip (laughs) like a big (laughs) a big like look at who i am and how big i am and like, look at what I can do type of thing. Like, there is space for that. And I think that's what that's what makes us, like, so lucky as a generation of chefs is that, like, we can sort of guerrilla market our way through, like, social media and word of mouth and, like, you know, food media is how it is. Like, if you know the right person and you tap them, like, you can get your stuff out there in a way that, like, 20, 30 years ago, people couldn't have. So there's a freedom in knowing that, okay, great. I get to do this for you. You pay me. Like you say, you just want chicken and rice. Like that's it. You get chicken and rice. Um, like, enjoy it. Um, here's my take on it. You don't want that take. Great. We're going to just do a classic version. Here you go. Here's your veggies. Now please pay me my money. I'm going to do what I really wanted to do and like, um, (laughs) like stretch my creative juices. Um, So I think that that's, that's where I find the freedom. And that's where like, that's what, that's what allows me not to stress so much about not being able to do what I want when I want it um, and how I want it. So, yeah.
0: I want to shift gears just a little bit and, um, Talk something about talk about something that's a little bit more specific to the actual idea of communicating what we mean by the food that we're curating, and um, we were chatting earlier, and you brought up a point about um, language on menus and. Um, whether that be something new that, let's say, like American food consumers are not necessarily hearing a lot or a traditional way of doing something and kind of describing that on the menu. Um, I want to hear what you think or your thoughts about um, how we communicate the dishes that we're putting together, whether they be um, ancestral and attached to our heritage or whether they be something um, that's a new take on, uh, on something, you know, rice and chicken, you know what I'm saying? Curating what you like from that. Um, but you know, what do you think about when it comes to, how you communicate the dishes that you're making or f- let's say for the menu for example so whether that be specific language like i'm saying like um a a traditional way of preparing something and using that uh that traditional language of describing how that's prepared in the menu and how people receive that information um what do you think about kind of as i as i talk that through
2: i I think, honestly, it starts with, like, the concept and then, like, goes to the menu. Because I think, like, if you have that down, it's just like, okay, like, I recently curated um, just, like, a a G'day event in New York um, in collaboration with Ada um, Supper Club. And that G'day is, um, like, the Haitian Day of the Dead. It's a day that we commemorate commiserate remember um the deities um it's a day that's filled with like drums and um (laughs) mystic and um just a lot of like superstition but a lot of like reverence and like respect um so the way i approached that was Really, like I started with like the playlist, <laughs> and then I started with like, um, who exactly am I paying homage to, um, d- in this food? Right during Gay Day ceremonies, I know there's a lot of like smoked fish. I know there's a lot of like, um, alcohol and like all that stuff. I know there's, um, just. Cultivating like just um reaping from the land what you've cultivated and receiving that. so i I really took that and ran with it in like three different directions. Um, we ended up doing just sort of like cocktail bites, but really, just how do I want to showcase this? What do I want the table to look like, and how do I want like when, yeah, you see this says um, black rice balls, and with this and that, or you see this saying like, um, smoked fish on like banana or plantain. Um, how do I want that to look and how do I make it so that you enjoy something that you might not necessarily expect? Cause I think everybody that came to that event didn't quite know <laughs> what <laughs> what they wanted, what they were going to get, but they left feeling like they got something that was familiar, but at the same time new. Um, Right,
0: I hear that. Yeah. It's kind of like starting with the, the overhead, like you're saying, what you want people to take away or even specifically before we lay out the menu and how the menu is presented, yes. how the food is presented. We're talking about building the context first and foremost, yeah. so working from this specific event, knowing that, um, you know, for celebrating this specific moment, that these are all the elements that make up that yeah. moment. And then after people or as people kind of get that context of like, okay, this is this kind of celebration. This is this kind of event. This is this kind of um, honoring or moment with the reverence and the, in the culture and this, this and that. Now I am able to look at this food or look at this menu or, you know, if there's something written um, in the space, whether it be, you know, a piece of art that has some language on it or some poems or whatever, um, you know, that I understand the context in which this is all kind of put together for me in it, even though I might be stepping into it in the unknown, being like, what even is going on in (laughs) here? I'm walking out being like, okay, this is a little bit familiar. I had some family moments. I recognize these dishes or I recognize these ingredients and I'm able to build that kind of context. Yeah. I'm coming from a place listening to As You Speak, like, oh, I've never been to that Haitian event. You know what I'm saying? I've never gone to x y and z so although there are food elements that i recognize as being integral in that food culture whether it be this island or that or etc um i'm able to kind of build that context through the experience yeah. and as you kind of lay it out i think that's an interesting and, and crucial part of food language is even if the context you don't have yet behind the dishes or how things are described that once you can step into a space and kind of build that experiential context, some of that language that, you know, you might not have yet, right. Whether it be specific words or dishes, you're able to kind of build that as it's presented. And and that's a really big part of curation.
2: Yeah. I think it's something that also comes with like um, intention, like you, that you have to do with like, sit down and really say like, I'm, focus and intent on honoring these people and honoring my culture and showing a new side like oh on this day um hate like you know Haitian people always pour coffee or they pour like like it's important to me that I showcase this essential piece of like the culture in different ways and like putting my talent and putting my training to it, um, that's something that like, is like, (laughs) it's just like, um, I get very excited
1: about. Well, and that's, that's the whole topic. It's the kind of concept of food language. It's what you want to say through not only the food that you're actually putting on the table, through the menu that you have written, through the music that you're playing. It's why we all get into hospitality in the first place is because we had a memorable moment that made us feel something not just that the food tasted good or this cocktail was so good it made me want to become a bartender I was like no I had I like never knew that bartending could be a career until I watched bartenders that I loved that I like fell in love with the experience they made me feel and I think that that's something that's so special that that you are doing and it's why you were the perfect guest to talk to today about food language and and thank you so much for joining I us. I hope I gave y'all everything you oh, needed. <laughs> we could keep going. You know, we could keep going.
2: I know. I'm like, I'm like buzzing now. But thank you so much for inviting me. Um, yeah, I'm excited for this. I'm excited for you guys.
1: Thank you, Nikki.
0: So, what was that conversation?
1: Honestly, I wasn't paying attention to any of it. Um, no, I'm kidding. I. I, I was not there, yeah. No, I I have to say, I love hearing from a chef perspective because I feel like I'm always surrounded by bartenders. And so I feel like we all tend to like <laughs> just only talk about cocktails or wine or beer, or what's going on in the beverage industry. So it's great to hear from that perspective. I thought, honestly, the thing that I really liked hearing her bring up was the fact that it's still a business and that she's really had to kind of mold her ideas of what she wants to say depending on the demographic that's going to be sitting at her table. You know, I feel like that we already do that as servers and and front of house people. We're very much chameleons based on our clientele. You can't really be a chameleon with the food you're putting out. It's already on the menu. Like you can only select it how it is. So I think it's really about a form of handholding, but also just kind of like caressing the guest into like understanding the ethos of the restaurant, the bar, whatever it is. Um, That was kind of my biggest takeaway what about you
0: yeah I think my biggest takeaway from Nikki was her talking about the level of of context that's needed for someone to step into um her food space or or um a booking that she has for an event or what have you Um, really providing uh, an understanding of what they're even stepping into. So whether it be, you know, uh, during the onboarding with the client, being like, what are you guys looking for? You know what I mean? What's your audience? Who are you planning on attending? Like, you know, she even said, you know, about food restrictions, get it to me. And um, if it's anything beyond that, then, you know, that's beyond my control if I've asked for it. So I think my biggest takeaway, again, from Nikki was just the – that food and how you curate a space around that food um should have context and that food and food experiences um are most impactful when people have that context and essentially when food and food language isn't speaking at you but it's experiential and you've been folded into it. Yep. You know what I mean? Like you're interacting Yeah. With
1: you're right. You I think you just like hit it on the head of the nail. <laughs> whatever the phrase is. Hit the yeah, nail yeah, on the yeah. head. <laughs> um that one. Uh I just think the idea of not talking at and talking to and with people is it seems so obvious and it's probably gonna be cheesy to anybody listening to this. If you're in the industry, like, yeah, we get it. We've been trained on that, but I still experience it all the time when I go out to eat where like somebody who's jaded in their job, you know, unfortunately just gets to that place of talking at and not sort of being the warm presence, because I will say this, and this is where we're gonna get a little cheesy. When it comes to food language, of course, you can tell, you can say something, you can be poignant, you can try to make a specific point or make a point of view clear in the food that you're putting out there or how you're writing the menu, but the one kind of universal element that remains is that it's still hospitality and that you still want people to engage in it and the way to engage with a lot of things is through warmth doesn't mean you can't be strong and and pointed in, in the points that you're making. You know, I'm not saying that you have to be nice all the time. It's not to say that you put a smile on your face, but that is the tough part about working in hospitality is like really walking that fine line of remaining warm and present and open in order for people to really digest that. Well, that food language that you're putting out there, whatever you're trying to say as a, as a hospitality, you know, space has to be received you want them to receive it you want them whatever it might be the way to do that is through being hospitable whatever that is to you
0: yeah I think um it circles back to again I mean all of our conversations or some element of every conversation that we're having this season has to do with culture and communication and tradition and I think that food language um, culture, language, and tradition, um, and heritage, and et cetera, are at the root of how we communicate through food. Whether that be we're sitting on the ground, we're sitting in chairs, we're eating with our hands, we're eating with forks or chopsticks, all of that is attached to um, a cultural evolution moment where that is the best way, or is seen as the best way, or the most relevant way to communicate. So, um, yeah, as, as we think about food language, I encourage folks as they step out of this episode to think about the traditions or the expectations they have with how food is served or how they prefer food to be served. And if they can tie that back to uh, a moment of their own culture or a, a experience with their family or um, just a personal preference that they have as they've as they've stepped into their own independence and shit. So, yeah, I think it, you know, think about it. Take a moment. Thanks, y'all, for joining us for another episode of Anthropological. We will see you next time. Peace.
1: I... I think I'm... Well, I think I'm going to start making pasta after this, actually. I haven't eaten anything since, like, 8 (laughs) a.m. I'm so hungry. It's, by the way, 6 p.m. If you're still tuned in. This is, like, Mm. the credits of Anthropological.
0: Yeah, this is the credits. I think um, my little sister has been uh, encouraging me to braid her hair, so I'm going to probably stepped into
1: that and started braiding no. this little hair. Me too. My sister wants me to braid her hair also. <laughs> um, yeah. My non-existing sister and yeah. my inability to know how to braid hair. <laughs>